Hello and welcome to Finding Truth Matters with Dr. Andrew Corbett. It's Sunday and what do apostles always do on Sunday? Take a stand. Go to church. What do you, how do you go to church when you're exiled on an island all by yourself? Just have it right there all by yourself. It wasn't like he was ever, ever on his radar. Oh, I don't think I'll go to church today. And he wasn't going because he was an apostle. He was going because he loved Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. The original audience of the book of Revelation were enduring massive persecution on two fronts. Tens of thousands of believers had already been martyred and things were about to get a lot worse. Against this backdrop, God gives his revelation to John to convey to the seven churches of Asia Minor. It shows how different God's perspective on world events is compared with ours. Tonight, Dr. Corbett is in the second part of his series, Understanding Revelation. Hi, this is Andrew Corbett. And just before you have a listen to this presentation, I wanted to apologize for its audio quality. On the day it was recorded, we had some technical difficulties, but trust that you'll still find the content worth listening to despite Father, this. This book is called The Book of the Revelation of Jesus Christ. And I pray that today many of us would receive just that, a new, fresh revelation of Jesus Christ. I pray, Lord, that it would cause our hearts to be filled with adoration, filled with wonder, filled with gratitude, filled with awe for who you are. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We have seen, as we introduced the book of Revelation last week, understanding the book of Revelation, that this is one of the most speculated books in the Bible. It's been, there's been more speculation about this book than any other book. This week on Facebook, I just came up on one of, one of the little things, or Facebook or something like that, how someone has now found reference to Donald Trump in the book of Revelation. <laughs> Thank you for an appropriate response. <laughs> Because it was only a few years ago that people found Barack Obama in there. So this, is, this just shows how, firstly, how some people have a, an entirely wrong premise when they're approaching the book of Revelation. Secondly, it shows that so many people are naive, gullible, open to this kind of, um, the theological word is nonsense. And so this kind of speculation about what the book of Revelation means has brought a great deal of discredit to the Bible. Because you, you go out there and you say, oh, this, this is talking about Barack Obama or, or Donald Trump or whoever, and then the years go by, they go by, and suddenly, well, what did it mean then? And it means well, people now view the Bible as nonsense because it just doesn't make sense. And that's a shame. That's, that's actually really, really tragic and I'm, I'm saddened by that. I wish people would note the very first five, the first five words of the book itself. This is what it says. The revelation of Jesus Christ, and the rest of the verse goes on, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John. Now there's a lot that can be said there about leadership structure, how God works through leadership and authority because here we have the Father communicating to the Son 
who communicates it to an apostolic authority, who communicates it to pastors in a local church. If I had the time, I would show you that uh, when John's told to write to the angels of the churches, I know that there are some people who think these are heavenly, celestial angels. That, that can't be right. Um, the word angel in Greek is the word angelos. It means messenger, and it's God's appointed messenger to the local church, which is the pastor or the senior elder or whatever title you want to you give them. So the first five words are worth noting that this book is going to give you a revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, why is that important? In this section that we're going to look at now, as the book of Revelation is introduced, the, the very first thing we're confronted with is a revelation of who Christ is. We see in Revelation chapter 1 that the Apostle John, who in that final night in the upper room, as, as Christ was instituting the Lord's Supper and celebrating the Last Supper, we see that John leant across the breast of Christ. He heard the heartbeat of Christ. That John, who was closer to Christ than any of the other disciples, is on the Isle of Patmos. John is uh, around about 50 or so years of age. This is AD 65. And here is John. They've tried to execute him by boiling him in oil. He's, he survived. And everywhere he looks, Christians have been dragged out of their homes and butchered and Rome is taking them and impaling them on, on pine posts as dipping them in tar and lighting them at night as candles to the Colosseum. And, and this is a horrible time to be a Christian. And you could understand John despairing. You could understand John thinking, we failed. Christ gave us one mission to take his gospel to all the ends of the earth and we failed. We, you can understand John thinking that this is a time where I'm just despairing because the church is under so much attack. But that's not what he's doing. John on the Isle of Patmos, we read this as he, as in a moment as, as he encounters Christ, the, the, it, we are told that he was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I'll make a big point about that in a moment. And here this, this John says that when he encountered Christ, he didn't immediately recognise Christ. Because the Christ that we're now being presented with in the closing book of the Bible is not the Jesus meek and mild that walked the shores of Galilee. This is the Lord triumphant. This is Jesus ruling and reigning. We're going to read about a Jesus who has a sword strapped to his side. His sleeves are rolled up, he has a military belt on, and he's riding an emperor's horse into battle. It's a little bit of a different picture to Jesus, meek and mild, the babe of Bethlehem. So we are going to get a fuller picture of Christ from reading this book. But the thing that Christ immediately wants people to know is just how close to his heart the local church is. So we read in, in this in, in verse 4. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, that's Asia Minor, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before his throne. And I just want to make one little point here and I don't want to get bogged down in it. This will be made a whole lot clearer as we go through Revelation. We read that without reference to 
the Old Testament imagery that goes into that verse. We read this without understanding what most Jews would have understood when they hear something like that. This expression, the one who is to come, we in our Western culture, particularly from the year 1835 when this became popularised, read that as, and we do almost do this mind swap, we read that as return, the one who is to return. Can I point out to you that the word return in Greek is a completely different word to this word. It doesn't mean return. It means come. And what you're going to read in the Old Testament is that we have the prophets, the, 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 the psalmists declaring the Lord is coming in judgment. And, and we read that particularly related to the nation of Egypt. In fact, in Isaiah 19 verse 1, it says, Woe unto you, Egypt, the Lord is coming to you, riding a cloud as a chariot. And he's, he was coming, the prophet Isaiah said, to judge Egypt, to remove them as a world power. The Lord coming to them, and we read this now in the New Testament, as a picture of God's judgment. It's in Psalm 96 and so on. There's, there's so many references through the Old Testament where they cry out to the Lord to come and rescue, come and judge. And when we read this, please don't do one of those mind swaps. Don't do that. Just take it for what it says. Now, you could accuse me for being someone who takes the Bible literally and I'm going to be guilty as charged. Literally as it is intended to be taken. So what do we know about this time in which the writing of Revelation happened? AD 65, we know that the church was facing phenomenal persecution on two fronts. We, we read about it in the book of Acts, that almost from the outset of the church, the church faced persecution. Where did that persecution come from? It came from Jerusalem. Jerusalem, as a, a, a statement of the the, the, the Pharisees, the Sanhedrin, the scribes and Pharisees, the high priests, they, they were out to get Christians. We read in Acts 8 verse 1, in, just to refresh our memory, and Saul approved of his, that is Stephen's, execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. So the church began to be persecuted on that day. And on that day, we read that they, they were scattered. And, and you know the story that, that Paul then went to the high priest and asked for letters of approval and authority to go and chase these Christians down across the known empire. So the church was being persecuted initially by, we'll just sum it up and call it Jerusalem. But then, what history tells us, and the New Testament only alludes to, is that Rome began to persecute Christians in the first century. In fact, we'll see that. So when we come to the close of the book of Acts, if you've ever read Acts, Acts is one of, the, one of those books that actually doesn't have an end. It almost finishes with the word, and then suddenly, full stop. It doesn't finish it doesn't tell us what happened it just stops and the reason is because scholars believe acts was written as a defense for the apostle paul in particular and for christians in general 
because Paul was about to go and stand before Caesar and be judged. And Acts was written to show Rome, the Christians are no threat. The church is no threat. Don't, don't treat us like we're a threat. We're not a threat. And so it was presented because Paul was taken to Rome in, in Acts 28. He's, he's in Rome, it says here. And when we came to Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself, that is by the Roman authorities, with the soldier who guarded him. So he was kept under house arrest. And what we know is that Saul would be executed by Caesar Nero. In fact, he was executed by Caesar Nero shortly after. Now he's in house arrest. During that house arrest, Caesar Nero, the emperor at the time, takes the apostle Peter and has him executed publicly by crucifixion. He then calls for Paul. Paul is brought before Caesar and Paul is beheaded. Now, does that change the way you view this? Now, this persecution of Christians had begun. Caesar Nero was seeing Christians as a threat. We read in Acts that, that, that uh, Jews and Christians had to flee the city of Rome because Caesar had burnt a part of Rome and he was blaming them for it and so they fled. And so as this began to ramp up, Peter in writing, First Peter, he, he refers to this as happening in the background, that this, this persecution from Rome had begun. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will restore you, confirm, strengthen and establish you. And we read that and go, oh, isn't that lovely? That's, that's lovely. Without realising the context that he has in mind, that there are people being butchered and executed for no other reason than they've said, I follow Jesus. And because of that, Peter, Peter says, look, don't worry about it, just keep serving Christ. This is just momentary. It's, it will, we'll just suffer a little while. In that same epistle, he says, make sure you honour the king, honour the, honour the emperor. Well, that same man that he said to honour would be the one that would have him crucified, publicly crucified upside down. So Rome began persecuting Christians in 64 AD. Now here's, I'm going to give you some dates that are really super important. And they will, if you, if you are not familiar with these dates, they will completely change the way you view the New Testament. The first one is 64 AD. Rome, Caesar Nero, declared war on the church. He began persecuting Christians. 66 AD is the next date. And that's when Caesar Nero declared war on Jerusalem and Jerusalem went into siege. 68 AD is when Caesar Nero somewhat mysteriously died. Well, if you can call being invited by the Praetorian Guard to commit suicide mysterious, it was mysterious. He was very young, he was 31 years of age, and he was asked to take his life. Um, that's bad, by the way. If the, the, the Praetorian Guard, which in, in modern terms is like the US Secret Service, they have one job, protect the president. The Praetorian Guard had one job, protect Caesar. And these guys who'd sworn their life to protect him said, you are not worth protecting, you better take your own life. So in, 31, in 68 AD, Nero did. The other, so the next day is 70 AD. Who can tell me quickly what happened in 70 AD in first century related to the New Testament? Jerusalem was destroyed, the destruction of Jerusalem. 64 AD, 66 AD, 68 AD, 70 AD, all very important dates. 
The persecution against Christians lasted from 64 to 68. That was coincidentally three and a half years. The persecution against Jerusalem, the war in Jerusalem, lasted from 66 AD to 70 AD, which was also coincidentally three and a half years. Most Christians, I think, are historically unaware of this. It was as if Rome had declared war on the church in 64 AD and the church was now under dire and deadly threat. It looked like the church would be snuffed out. Now think about this. If you're Satan, if you're the enemy of God and you want to destroy his whole plan of redemption, the best time to do it is when it's a seedling. Just as a seedling. And if Satan could destroy the church from the outset... You and I would not be here today. Christ would not be glorified. We sang the song that his glory will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. Amen. Amen. Um, I've had several people tell me that uh, Campbell Markham made a profound point during the, the Wednesday night marriage forum, and that was how unfair this fight is about the, the marriage uh, postal vote because they've got you know the top 200... Uh, CEOs in Australia have all affirmed same-sex marriage. The top 50 marketing companies have donated their time, effort and resources to promoting the Yes campaign. Um, how so many big businesses are getting involved. Coca-Cola about to rainbow their Coke cans for the time. And it's just, it's just like so much is in support. This fight is so unfair for them because we have God on our side. And we need to have our perspective changed by what we see here in the book of Revelation. Christ is Lord. His glory will cover the whole earth as the waters cover the sea. We read here that John says this, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet. And this, I, I remember reading this as a teenager and being struck by the fact that John, not only when he looked at Christ, he didn't recognise him because it was the first time he saw Jesus in his glory. But then, more importantly, I'm struck by the fact that when he heard Jesus in his glory for the first time, he describes his voice as being like a trumpet, being like the sound of many waters crashing. It's, it, it's, it's almost beyond imagination what Christ appears to be and how he sounds, the magnificence of his glory. And this is what John is confronted with. It says in verse 11, the next verse, saying, this is what Christ said to him, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Verse 12. So this is what he heard. Boom, crash, boom. John, right. And so what does John do? John goes, he turns to see who's speaking to him. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man clothed in a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. In his right hand he held seven stars and from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword and his face was like the sun shining 
in full strength. You see, the church was under threat. The church was about to be obliterated. John's thinking, oh man, what, the, what are we doing? And then Christ appears and says, John, I need you to change your perspective on what's happening right now. And to do that, I need to show you who I really am. Isn't that awesome? You can see why we as human beings gravitate toward uh, superhero characters. Because Christ is the ultimate superhero and every other imaginary uh, superhero was just trying to catch up. He's the real one. This would be awesome. So, the book of Revelation is Christ giving through John to the seven churches of Turkey his sovereign perspective on what's going on. And it wasn't what people were thinking. Now, when you think about Scripture, especially the New Testament, or in fact, not very far into the Old Testament, does the entire focus loci, that is where it's centred, it shifts to Jerusalem. Right up, just very early on, when, when David becomes king, it's all Jerusalem, that's all Jerusalem right there. That's where it's all happening, right there, Jerusalem. And the last book of the Bible, it's not Jerusalem. The focus is not Jerusalem. Well, you might think, oh, no, that's of course. Of course, Rome is the centre of the world now. All roads lead to Rome. The focus of the book of Revelation is Rome. No, it's not Rome either. It's what we might call Gentile Asia or Turkey. The focus is Turkey. In, in Turkey, this obscure place, these seven churches, literal, actual, real churches, Christ, from the outset, says, this is who I am, but let me tell you what's in my hand. Seven stars. And let me tell you where I'm standing. I'm standing among seven candlesticks. Let me tell you what the seven stars are. Let me tell you what the seven candlesticks are. These are local churches. Everyone is a local church, and I'm right there, and they are right around me, and I'm caring for them, I'm guarding them, I'm protecting them. And these stars, they're in my hand. They're all light bearers, by the way. And so, John, on this day, think about this Patmos. He says, on the Lord's day, I was in the Spirit. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. Boy, if we had time, we'd really ponder that and reflect on that because despite everything that had gone on and maybe the fact that his skin was Scolded and, and they tried to burn him and he hadn't died and there he is, he's on Patmos and he realises, he wakes up and he realises it's Sunday. It's Sunday. And what do apostles always do on Sunday? Take a step. Go to church. What do you, how do you go to church when you're exiled on an island all by yourself? Just have it right there all by yourself. It wasn't like he was ever, ever on his radar. Oh, I don't think I'll go to church today. <laughs> and he wasn't going because he was an apostle. He was going because he loved Jesus. He made a conscious decision. This is the Lord's day. The Lord's day. I'm going to come. I'm going to pray. I'm going to say, God, today I present my heart to you afresh. He's an apostle for Pete's sake. This is the guy that had his heart, his, his ear on the heart of Christ. 
This is the guy that felt Christ. He felt the, the breath of Christ's nostril on his neck as he looked up at Jesus. Can you imagine that? And here he is saying, today is the day I choose to honour God in the midst of the congregation. I haven't got a congregation, so I'm going to have to honour God as a congregation of one. That's not an excuse to avoid the congregation, by the way. But it is your option. If you haven't got one, and that would mean you're probably in the middle of the outback all by yourself. But if you're in a city, you can always find a congregation. You can always find a congregation. Here's Jesus presenting to John in this place. John had positioned himself to hear from God. And here we have John being told, write to these churches. Now notice this, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Philadelphia, or, oops, Sardis, Philadelphia, and then Laodicea. These churches were the trade route, as I mentioned before, and this is the order, and this is roughly the way they were positioned around Turkey, Ephesus on the coast, and so on. And some of you have been, I know some have uh, been to uh, Ephesus and seen the evidence of the church that was there. And that church, by the way, in Ephesus is the most written to church in the New Testament. In, in Revelation chapter 2, it's written to again. Um, First and Second Timothy is essentially to the church at Ephesus, of course, the letter to the Ephesians, and then in Acts chapter 20. We have all these writings to this church. This is a very special church. And there's a lot I could say about each of these, but, but I want you to understand this. Why isn't Jerusalem the focus loci? Why isn't Jerusalem the place where, the, where all the action is happening in this, this letter, this revelation? And here's why. You see, Jeremiah... And I think from memory, it's Jeremiah 3.18. Jeremiah says this. I sent your sister away with a bill of divorce. And now I'm sending you away too. And we can read that because it's Jeremiah 3.18. Think, mm, big deal. God is saying, Israel, I divorce you. I divorce you. Hmm. She just, just breaks my heart to think that the God of perfect love was scorned by the bride that he took. Scorned. And so he says, I divorce you. Now this, you might think, well, that's random, Andrew. Why are you bringing this in? It's not random. The book of Revelation talks about another marriage that God enters into. In fact, we read in Revelation chapter 19 that he takes a bride and he has a wedding feast. Now, the law said this, you can't do that. You can't do that if you're already married. But how could the God of perfect love who said in Malachi, I hate Divorce. How could he divorce? There's only one real legitimate way you can, you can legally, biblically, in the fullest, most purest sense, end a marriage. Now please, this is not a comment about marriages that end in divorce. I want to talk about God right now. 
And that is, and Paul refers to it, unless you die. If one of the partners dies, the marriage is over. You know, when Jesus Christ died on the cross, it was not just the old covenant ended, but his marriage to Israel. Why does Jeremiah say that God sent them away with a certificate of divorce? Because they had played the harlot. They had gone after other lovers and broken their covenant with God. And so we read that God sent them away. But the ultimate fulfilment of that couldn't happen until Jesus died on the cross. And so what we have here in Revelation, in a very real way, are the divorce papers. And this is Christ's message now to his new bride. There are many in this room who've gone through the pain of divorce and it's a horrible thing, just horrible. And I don't think anyone would say, no, it's good fun, you should try it. It's not, it's not good fun. There's nothing good about it. And I'm, I could have, I could have a, a line of people up here to say, that's right. That was one of the hardest, most painful, heartbreaking things I went through. As we've heard tonight, despite the attempts to destroy the church, Christ still cherishes his church and its local congregations. That's all we have time for tonight, but you can order the full-length version of this presentation on CD audio or premium download by going to findingtruthmatters.org and selecting Understanding Revelation Part 2 from our online store. More on Revelation next week. Dr Corbett is pastor of Lagana Christian Church and president of ICI Theological College Australia. We look forward to having you tune in again next week for another Finding Truth Matters.